ask you a question. Uh, we're, we are going to continue in our, our series today called Nameless, these amazing stories of God's grace for these women who were just nameless in the Bible. But I want to start by asking you a question. Uh, do you think our, in our country today we have a crisis? Yes. Do you? Yeah. What do you think it is? <laughs> yeah. Rich uh, said, which one? I think we have a moral crisis in our country today. An absolute, we're experiencing in our culture a kind of uh, in, uh, sort of nationwide moral collapse. And I think that really comes from the spiritual crisis that we're experiencing. People don't know God. They don't know who God is. Uh, they have not experienced his salvation. But I also think we have a tribal crisis. I think people are ever more uh, becoming factionalized, you know, and just getting into these groups and then recruiting God uh, to be on our team so we can beat the other team. And, you know, so God becomes a tribal deity. But the one I'm going to mention this morning or really drill down on uh, today at the introduction of my message is really this crisis of what mental health professionals are calling the crisis of loneliness. And it's a crisis of being unknown. And uh, mental health professionals have said that this particular crisis is uh, just as dire as obesity, as substance abuse, or opioid addiction. Socially isolated people are more than twice as likely to die of heart disease. They're more stressed, less created, and have lower self-worth and value, and they feel a greater sense of a loss of control of their lives than what researchers are calling the non-lonelies. We live in a world where we are more connected through social media and technology than we ever have been before. Yet those connections often are very, um, they're very superficial. And people can look at our pictures on Instagram and read our thoughts on Facebook and Twitter. But are we really known? And some have come up with some unique and creative solutions to the problem. And loneliness is believed to affect 9 million people in the UK. British Prime Minister uh, Theresa May created the first Minister for Loneliness. In recent days, she launched the government's first loneliness strategy because that's always the cure, a government program. Yes, let's, <laughs> let's just throw government at it. That's so UK. <laughs> Millennials have been dubbed the loneliest generation on earth. Sociologists are mainly looking at the hours spent in front of screens. The irony is I learned this statistic from a screen, <laughs> you know, like while reading it on my iPhone. But this time spent sort of connecting at a superficial level with people through technology has not really deepened their experience with others. And so they cite in research, they cite that the two greatest fears they have in life are number one, a life of insignificance, a life that just didn't matter. And two, a life that was profoundly unknown, where their needs and what drives them and their personality was really, truly nameless. The irony of social media is that a person can have millions of followers on YouTube, literally. Some of these people have millions of followers on their YouTube channel as people log in to watch them build furniture. I've watched so many of those videos. <laughs> or to watch them uh, listen to their reviews of movies and yet not know a single real person in their life. And I want to show you a woman who lived 800 years before Jesus. 800 years before Jesus, and she was utterly unknown, utterly nameless. And, and the issues and deep 
pressing things of her life were not known to anyone until she told them. It's in 2 Kings chapter 4. 2 Kings chapter 4. It says, the, the wife of a man from the company of the prophets cried out to Elisha. That's all she's called. She's just called the wife of a man from the community of prophets. She cried out to Elisha, the prophet. Your servant, my husband, is dead. And you know that he revered the Lord, but now his creditor is coming to take my two boys as his slaves. Elisha replied to her, how, how can I help you? Tell me, what, what, did, what do you have in your house? Your serving has nothing at all, she said, except a small jar of olive oil. Elisha said, go around and ask all your neighbors for empty jars. Don't ask for just a few. Then go inside and shut the door behind you and your sons. Pour oil into all the jars. And as each is filled, put it to one side. She left him and shut the door behind her. And her sons, they, they brought the jars uh, to her and she kept pouring. When all the jars were full, she said to her son, bring me another one. But he replied, there are no jars left. Then the oil stopped flowing. She went and told the man of God, and he said, Go sell the oil and pay your debts, and you and your sons can live on what is left. And I love this story because I think that it's just a beautiful picture of God's provision for us in the Christian life. And I want to just draw your attention to a few principles that I think are right here in the text. And the first one is this. God cares about the unknown God cares about the unknown. He cares about those lonely people. He cares about the people who have deep needs in their heart that no one else knows about, but he knows about them. And today we're looking at a woman in this story who is located, I think, strategically between two stories. The first one is Elisha's ministry among kings. And then after this story, he hobnobs with prominent families in Israel. And she's right in the middle, and I think rightly so. God doesn't just care about kings and famous people and prominent people. God cares about the, the little folks too, those who feel like they are unknown and live unremarkable lives. Now, Elisha is, had the benefit of being a famous prophet. He uh, apparently was served by other prophets in what they call a guild or a community of prophets. And in that guild, it was full of men that we don't know either. We don't know who they were. They faithfully proclaimed God's word, but we know who Elisha was and who was he? He was the apprentice of a man named Elijah. And we learned last week that Elijah was really, he looked just about what you think he would look like as an Old Testament prophet. Pretty grisly guy, right? He had this weird haircut, wearing camel's uh, cloaks and a leather belt and sort of uh, cricket legs in his beard. The guy was weird, but he was a prophet of God. And he has this very interesting story of having been taken directly into the presence of the Lord, directly into heaven in a chariot or with a chariot, this golden chariot that came out of heaven. And it just took him up in a whirlwind. And Elisha saw this, but Elisha inherited his mantle, his ministry, and his method. Elisha inherited this from his master and carried on his ministry before kings and before the prominent and before the famous people of his day. But right here, he stops to meet the needs of a little widow. She was married to a man who was a member of the company of prophets, one of the sons of the prophets, not even exactly sure. Scholars are not even exactly sure what that means, but just a community of preachers who delivered God's word. And this reminds me of Jesus. It reminds me of the way he was. It reminds me that Jesus spent most of his time up in Galilee, hanging out and ministering to the riffraff to the people who the Pharisees and prominent people in down in Jerusalem thought didn't matter all that much. 
And Jesus spent most of his time with them. But I think in particular of the thief on the cross. Remember that guy? Jesus is crucified between two thieves. Two bandits. And these two thieves are probably not just stealing for bread, although that's possible. But they probably aren't. They're probably part of a revolutionary uh, group. And what they would do is they would try to subvert the Roman economy by stealing and uh, causing all, wreaking all kinds of havoc, havoc in Jerusalem. And so these men are now being crucified for their crimes, their rebellion, their sedition against Rome, and for stealing. And obviously they're slaves or they wouldn't be on crosses. And so one of the slaves one who is being crucified, he begins to mock Jesus. And he says, Messiah, since you're the Savior, why don't you save yourself and save us too? Messiah is mocking Jesus. And the other thief rebukes that thief and says, shut up. We, we are all receiving the same condemnation, but you and I are receiving that condemnation justly. But this man has done nothing wrong. There is no fault with him. And then he turns to Jesus and has one request. What is it? Right, when you come into your kingdom, will you remember me? He doesn't ask for salvation, he asks to be remembered. Why? Because a man doesn't want to be forgotten, that's why. Because people don't want to be forgotten. The truth of the fact, the fact of the matter is this, is that within a generation and a half, you and I will be forgotten. Within a generation and a half, you will be a picture on somebody's Ancestry.com chart. And everything you ever said or thought or did or valued will be gone. And so this man just wants to be remembered and he asked Jesus to be remembered and Jesus says, I'm gonna give you something much better than that. Today you will be with me in paradise. And God cares about that thief who nobody knows who he is, but now he is in heaven with the Lord in paradise. And God cares about the needs of your heart and he cared about this widow. God cares about the unknown. Number two, everyone has a deficit somewhere in their life. Everyone does. I don't care who you are. Whether you're rich, materially rich, or not, or struggling, you could be the richest guy in the room, the richest guy in the world. You could be Jeff Bezos, right, who's been in the news lately, who has a deficit, a relational deficit in his life. Everybody has a deficit somewhere. Hers happens to be her material possessions. She owes. Her husband has died, and now they are coming to collect the kids, Here's what Jesus said in Matthew 5, 45. He says, he, God, causes his son to rise in the evil and the good. He sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. That means that the, the playing field is level here. We all get the same kind of benevolent blessings from God, and we all just about get the same opportunities and, and trials from the Lord. Which one of these do you think is a trial, and which one do you think is a blessing? Right now, I would say rain is a trial. It's a trial in my life, as I'm sure it is in many of yours who are waiting for summer. But then summer comes in a month or two from now. And then, and then it comes, and, and then it gets really hot. You know how hot it gets around here. It's like it's, when, it, when it's really hot, you don't think this is a cold place. You think this is a hot place. And then at the end of the summer, you're thinking, oh, I could really use some rain. And, 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 and Jesus says the Father sends the sunlight and the rain on both the righteous and the unrighteous equally. He's no respecter of persons. He's an equal opportunity giver that way. And her debt, she's experienced a kind of deficit that is common to us all. It's something that 
even though her situation is kind of unique for us, but it is something that she owes. And there's real profound loss here. There's, a, there's, a, there's something in the text that we're not seeing because it's underneath the text. Creditors are coming to take her children, and this indebtedness might cause her to lose her family members, her kids, her property, her home, everything. And this kind of slave indebtedness existed in the ancient world. The Bible didn't invent it. God didn't invent it. It existed in the ancient world, but it is carefully regulated by the Torah. In fact, Moses says this. If a person has to go into indentured servitude to pay off their debt, according to Exodus 21, they're to be set free after six years. So after six years on that seventh jubilee year, that person who is a debt slave, is to be set free. Leviticus 25, it says that you must absolutely not treat your slave, your indebted person, harshly. You must treat them well. The slaver was also to set people free in the seventh year with enough provisions so that they would never, ever have to become indebted again or enslaved again. So the message there is you better think twice who you take because you'll have to set them free with enough and they must allow people and family members to be redeemed. This is what is called redemption, or the redemption came through a kinsman redeemer, a relative who could come and pay off the debt and then bring that person, assimilate that person, bring that person into their family. And that person did not necessarily have to be a blood relative. They could be anyone. Anyone could come and adopt a family and redeem them and pay their debts and bring them into their family. And we all have this same debt when it comes to sin. And Christ has paid it. Colossians chapter 2 verses 13 through 14 say this. Here's what Paul said. God made you alive with Christ. He forgave all of our sins, the debt of sin, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. So Jesus does not just take the note of our sin and tear it up or burn it in a fire. Jesus actually pays it. That's how he cancels it. He nails it to his cross. Beyond that though, we may face all kinds of deficits in life. They may be material, emotional, or relational. You may be sitting right here this morning and nobody knows just how lonely you are because you are not vitally connected to the family, to the body of Christ, to others who know you. Nobody knows the loneliness and the deficits in your heart. What I like about this widow is I really like the fact that she's not quiet about her request. She doesn't turn in an unspoken request in the from the bulletin. She cries out, Elisha, I have a need and I want you and God to know. Thirdly, God wants to meet your needs. God wants to meet our needs. He really does. Jesus said this in Matthew chapter 6, verse 25. It says, therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, about your body or what you will wear. Is not life more than food and and the body more than clothes. Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow and they do not reap or store away in barns. And yet your heavenly father feeds them, the birds. And are you not much more valuable than the sparrows? Can any of you by worrying add a single hour to your life? You know what the very next thing Jesus says is this. He says, look at the grass of the field. The grass, the lilies. And they are arrayed. And more, more splendorous than 
Solomon, King Solomon was himself. Does not God care about you more than he cares about the grass in the field? Now, I know God cares about grass. And I, <laughs> I hate, I believe this with all my heart, and I hate birds. Are any of you bird watchers? I don't mean to put you on the spot. Oh, man. I don't understand that. The, the only reason I watch a bird is to chase them off of my lawn. And I'm that guy. I'm your neighbor who runs out there like, oh, get off my lawn. Uh, sort of late last year, I planted some grass seed. And, and some of it has come up. And it's starting to grow and it's starting to look a little thick. But as I'm, as I'm walking around in my grass and looking around for little bare spots, I do this. <laughs> I see uh, like some seed that just didn't take. And so every day, I kid you not, I know it's spring because every day the birds swoop down into my yard and I come home and I find them all in my yard eating the, what's left. And so I run out of my car going, oh, get away, birds, you know. And, and then I sit in my house and the other day I was watching them, I was waiting for them. I was going to run out. This is true. Carrie, tell you this is true. I was waiting to run out and chase them off my lawn. And, uh, and I had just read this passage. And I thought, I'm going to include that in my notes this week. And then I just had this really cool aha moment. I thought, oh man, I'm not going to run the birds off today. God cares about those birds. And apparently the seed didn't take and I've got seed to spare. And so I started looking at the birds through my window going, God cares about you, little bird. God cares about you, little bird. I just had a really weird devotional time that day. But it just occurred to me, God feeds the birds of the air. He cares and knows them by name. God knows them. He knows every blade of grass, how many you have in your yard. God cares about the world. What does that tell you? God cares about the small stuff. God cares about the things that you may feel are insignificant. The issues of your heart, God cares about them. And God wants to do a miracle for you. Do you believe that? Now, God is sovereign. He may not. I mean, his answer may be yes, but it might be no. It might be not yet, or you're not ready yet. Maybe later. God can answer you any way he wants to. But I believe that our default prayer and expectation ought to be, God, I'm expecting good things from you. You are a good and gracious king. But God wants to meet our needs, I think primarily through what we have. Notice the first thing that she says to this prophet. She says, I need, I need your help. These creditors are coming. And he asks her this question. What do you have? And she says, I don't have anything. Oh, wait. I have that one jar. It's a small jar. It just has some oil in it. And he says, okay, we'll start there. Let's start with some jars. God provides the miracle, but it often requires a little sweat equity. Look at Moses coming up to the mount. Moses comes up to the mount and God says, you're the man. You're the man. I'm calling you to deliver my people from Pharaoh, from Egypt. And Moses cannot believe it. He argues with God and then he asks this question. He says, what is the sign that you will give me to show these people that I am the man? And God, God's answer is this, what is in your hand? And he says, a staff. God says, we'll start there. Let's use the staff. Look at Jesus on the hillsides. The people are so enthralled and engaged with his ministry and his teaching that they have forgotten to eat. They have been there for hours and hours, maybe a day. And the disciples come to Jesus and say, oh, we don't have any food to feed these 
thousands of people. I mean, there's 10,000 people sitting here. We don't have any food to feed them. Jesus says, you go give them something to eat. And they go, whatever. If we don't have enough money, it would take a year's worth of wages and we still couldn't feed these people. And Jesus asked the question, how many loaves do you have? And they say, seven and a few pickled salted fish. And Jesus says, let's use that. You see, God always, when you come to God and you ask him for a miracle or provision, God is going to rifle through your pockets. God wants to know what you got on you. He wants to know what you have because he wants us to participate with this provision and this miracle. And I just love this scene. I love this picture here where as soon as God says yes, she gets to work. Honestly, she has to go. Her sons have to go out and collect a bunch of pots. And her, the limit of her provision is just how many pots can she collect? How many does she have room for in her house? And I love this picture. As soon as she has room for no more, the oil stops. That's beautiful. That's a beautiful picture of God's not only providing for her needs, but also abundantly providing for her so she can live off the rest. But she has to go down to the marketplace and she has to go through the work of actually selling it. God supplies the need, but God will set you into motion when he does. Uh, I experienced this many years ago. I was working. I just remember my last year of college. It was 1994. uh, And I just remember I was so burned out because I was working 32 hours a week. I was trying to take all the credits and stuff I could. Uh, My first, I I got my first three years paid for. And then I came to my last year, my senior year, and I didn't have the money. I just, I ran out. The, the, the jar was empty. And I remember I thought, well, I'll just, I'll just go get a job and I'm going to save money for a couple of years. And that's what I did. I became a youth pastor in Tri-Cities, Washington. And then I was working there. And the senior pastor came up to me one day and he said, hey, uh, what's, what's going on? When, when are you finishing your degree? I said, well, I'm going to save some money. And I, I, I told him my whole plan. I was prepared to work. I was prepared to get after it. And he went and talked to the elder board and they came back and a group of people in our church decided, nope, you're getting your degree now. And they paid for my last year and I just finished it by uh, driving up to Seattle and finishing classes that way. And I'm telling you, man, I have, for the last 25 years of ministry, I have always been so grateful to that group of people because I think what they saw in me was a potential and they wanted to invest capacity. And here's the deal. You might have to borrow capacity. Until God comes through for you, you might have to initially borrow someone else's capacity. I'll give you another very recent example. Right now, I feel like I am living on borrowed capacity every single day. Uh, About six months or so ago, my wife was diagnosed with stage three breast cancer, as most all of you know. And so I have just been praying every day, trusting the Lord. We've also gone through the the, um, whole system of going through chemotherapy and things like this. And um, some of you in this church (laughs) have just been amazing in terms of just overwhelming Carrie and I with meals. And that jar, Brenna, that you and the ladies made for Carrie, we were just these, what are they, just Bible promises or just these wonderful words of encouragement. And we were just going through them the other day, crying our eyes out. And I'm telling you, man, that w- I just felt like I'm borrowing capacity, just emotional capacity to even live. And it was just, uh, that was just a powerful time. And some of you stepped up financially. I- I'll tell you this, I don't care how good of a saver you are. I don't care how financial, I don't care. You can follow the Dave Ramsey plan, I do. 
But here's the deal. The, the day you get that diagnosis, if that ever happens to you, God forbid, all of your accounts are getting emptied out. All of them. It's rough. It's difficult. And I, so I got to work. <laughs> I started researching like uh, just all kinds of stuff. I mean, everything. I got in touch with every person I could, every social worker I could to get every single thing for Carrie that I could get. And I got all her treatments paid for. One treatment was more than I could make in half a lifetime. And so I just, I, I, God provided. God is the one who supplied it all. God is the one who gave me the connections and helped me meet the people I needed to meet. God supplied it, I got to work. And so God wants to meet your needs. God wants to provide for you. God cares about the issues of your heart. God knows what every single one of you sitting here, what the deep issues of your life are, and God cares about the birds and the grass, man. And he loves you. Do you know that? Do you know that you are not only known by Jesus, but you are loved by Jesus? He knows you and he loves you and he wants to be there for you. Will you pray with me? God, we're so thankful this morning that you're a good and gracious king. And we feel pretty overwhelmed at times that you're so gracious and you take the initiative to supply for us to provide all that we need. Firstly, in our redemption, which required nothing from us, you brought all the grace, we brought all the sin. And then from there, everything that we have needed. And God, we thank you for it. And we want to tell you thank you. And if you're here this morning and your heart is aching, your heart is crying out for God to meet a need. It can be an emotional need you have, a relational need if you are lonely, desperately lonely, if you have a physical need, a healing, or a financial need, will you just reach out to the Lord right now? Don't send in an unspoken request. He knows your heart, but will you just reach out in faith right now and trust him to meet that need? God, I pray for every person in this room, everyone who needs you and feels desperate for you this morning. Would you touch them where they are? Would you meet their needs according to your glorious, endless reserves? And we'll thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen.